everybody, welcome to another episode of Two Strike Noise, your weekly baseball history podcast. I am one of your hosts, as usual, Jeff. Mark is uh, feeling a little bit under the weather. He had uh, some things going on, and he is not going to be here this week. So we're gonna we're gonna wish Mark the best. I'm sure he will be back next week. But uh, as far as that goes, the show must go on. This is uh, just like the circus. Isn't that what it is? The show must go on. But uh, anyway, it's going to be just me this week. It's going to be a little bit shorter show because I don't have somebody to, you know, bounce everything off of and and carry on a conversation, except for the voices in my head. And you can't hear those. So we're just going to plow forward. We're going to do a a kind of abbreviated BP. I've got a great story this week that I can't wait to talk about. And then we'll do kind of a different kind of wax packs heroes where I've got some cards that we'll look through and do that as well. All right, so let's get right into our BP segment. Uh, again, it'll be a little bit shorter here. A couple of things that I found this week that I did want to bring up. A name from the past that I don't even know if we've ever pulled this guy in Wax Packs Heroes, but I certainly remember this guy's name, Scott Lucader. I remember him mainly with the Tigers, and that's what I want to talk about. So he was an outfielder, and uh, he has the distinction of having committed three errors in one ball game. Now, okay, that's not super odd. I mean, people have done that before. It's not the end-all, be-all. Scott had a really bad game on September 9th, 1989. The White Sox are in Detroit. And uh, in the very first inning, it was just... Scott Lucader should have probably just not showed up. So uh, the White Sox are obviously the visiting team. They come up. Uh, Ed Nunez is starting for the Tigers. He walks Lance Johnson to start off the ballgame, the one dog. And then he gets hurt. So he can't continue. Pitching change, that's not the worst of it. Okay, so uh, Scott Fletcher comes in. He's the second guy up. He walks as well. Then Yvonne Calderon. So he comes up and he doubles to right field. Johnson scores, Fletcher to third. Carlos Martinez comes up, and he hits a fly ball to right field. Here comes our guy, Scott Lucader, and he drops it. Score to sacrifice, E9, that scores a run. Here comes Daryl Boston. He singles to right field. Calderon scores. Martinez is going to third, and our boy, Scott Lucader, tries to throw him out at third and throws the ball away, and that allows Martinez to score. So that's two errors now on back-to-back plays by Scott Lucader. Sammy Sosa comes up. He strikes out swinging. Steve Lyons keeps his pants on, and he's intentionally walked. Ron Karkovice then strikes out swinging. So finally, there's two outs, and here comes Ozzie Guillen. He singles to right field. Daryl Boston scores. Lyons is going to second. And uh, our boy Scott Lucader once again commits an error as the ball rolls under his glove. And thusly, three errors for Scott Lucader in the top of the first inning. No more errors. He went one for four. He did strike out. Uh, and he also grounded into a double play. So that was that was his, his WPA minus in this game by himself was a point uh, minus point zero four six that is not a good game but scott lucader i hadn't heard that name for a while also something happened this week is always 
going to perk my interest. Somebody tied a Ricky Henderson feet. That does not happen very often. The person that did it was Whit Merrifield of the Royals. And he became the first major league player since Ricky Henderson in August of 1980. So 40 years ago, almost. Whit Merrifield became the first major league player to have two hits, a homer, and a stolen base in the first inning of a ball game. This happened uh, last Friday, the 4th. It was the Twins at the Royals. The Royals ended up winning this game 14 to 5. Whit Merrifield, in the bottom of the first inning, he came up, he led off against Matt Shoemaker with a single, he then stole second base, eventually came around to score, and then he did the Royals just kept hitting. Eventually, Whit Merrifield came back up again. There's two outs now. Matt Shoemaker still in the game, and Merrifield hits a home run to left field, a three-run job to left field. So he had got two hits, one of which was a home run and a stolen base the first inning. You know, those were Witt's only two hits of the game. I mean, come on, Witt. He was taken out. Hanser Alberto replaced him and got a couple ABs as well, so... But that's, uh, that's quite a feat whenever anybody can equal something that Ricky Henderson did. Another something that's... It's been a, kind of a weird week this last, uh, last week since we last talked. The Cubs' Patrick Wisdom is going off. And it, it's kind of similar to something we talked about. Uh, it was our trivia question, I believe, last week or the week before, where we had talked about uh, players and who had hit the most home runs consecutively to start the season in consecutive games. And we had Mark McGuire and Nelly Cruz, Chris Davis, Trevor Story, Christian Yelich, Willie Mays, all of these homered in their first four games of a, uh, of a, of a season. And then we talked about Trevor Story, how he had six home runs in his first four games period in the big leagues. This week though, Patrick wisdom has really been going off. So Patrick Wisdom this week became the third player ever with seven home runs in his first eight starts with a team, also accomplished by Aristides Aquino and the aforementioned Trevor Story. But Patrick Wisdom is just going off, and he's hit multiple home runs in several of these games. Now, the caveat here being the first start with the club. So this is the first start with the Chicago Cubs. Patrick Wisdom came up in 2018 with the Cardinals, and then 2019 he played with the Rangers sparingly. Last year he played with the Cubs but only appeared in two games and did not start either of those. His first eight starts with the Cubs, he has seven home runs, which is a, dare I say it, a buttload of home runs? I think that's a, I think that is a legitimate form of measurement for home runs is buttload. So we're going to go with it. All right. Last week, I asked some trivia. I ask Mark these trivia questions every week, and he never has an answer for me. So I'm not, he's not here. So it, I don't even have to ask him this week. But the question I asked to everybody else was about uh, last week, we talked about Mo Drabowski, the patron saint of this fine podcast. Okay, I can't, I'm not going to call it a fine podcast of this podcast. We had a lot of fun talking about 
uh, Mo Drabowski. Well, he played in Kansas City, and I wanted to see if anybody was listening, and I wanted the names of players that had played for both the Kansas City Athletics as well as the Kansas City Royals. And one person gave us the correct answers. That's Brian Krause sent in all four of the answers who are correct. But the main thing here is one of the answers was Mo Drabowski. And I said several times during the story, I said, oh, he was traded to the Royals. Well, he was on the Philadelphia Athletics. I was I was dropping clues, but uh, only one person got all of them. The answers were all pitchers, by the way. Mo Drabowski, who we covered in depth last week. Aurelio Montegudo, which that is a hard one to say. And uh, Ken Sanders and Dave Wickersham. So all four of those gentlemen appeared for both the Kansas City Athletics and the Kansas City Royals. As I mentioned, they were all pitchers and they were all clustered right in there. Ken Sanders was the latest one. He played for the Kansas City Athletics from 64 through 66 and then finally ended up on the Royals in 1976. But Mo Drabowski easily played the most for both of those teams and uh, there you go there are our answers thanks everybody for writing in with those brian kraus though was the only one that came up with all of them so now i've got a new trivia question that uh, i'm going to drop see who can get this one right and this one is going to take a little bit of thinking outside of the box i think this was a good good trivia question and i spent a good bit of time trying to find another answer I'm pretty sure that this is, I've got the correct answer here, but let's let's go with this anyway. Which franchise has been in both the American League and the National League, as well as all three divisions of one of those? So, American League, National League, and has at one point been in either the National League or the American League West, Central, and East. Obviously, not all at the same time. I, I just wanted to put that out there. But there you go. Okay, so I said it was going to be a quicker BP because I got other things here I wanted to talk about, but Mark's not here, so I can't really have a discussion about them as much as I would like to. So we'll save those for another time. And uh, we'll let the ground screw come out and do their stuff. And we are going to get into our main story this week. And this is a story that, It had been on my list for a while to do. I had uh, written most of this out. I'd kind of written an outline out a while ago, and it kind of been sitting around. So I just did some fleshing out of it this week, and I'm really excited to talk about this uh, because this is just a weird league. And what I want to talk about this week is the Golden Baseball League. Now, it would not shock me if a lot of people had not heard of the Golden Baseball League. In 2005, a young Dave Cavell, who you might now... No, as the snake oil salesperson who is currently president of the Oakland Athletics. Well, he created an upstart new independent baseball league. It was on the West Coast, and it was called the Golden Baseball League. Investors in the initial GBL included Wheel of Fortune host Pat Sajak. I believe we've talked about him before as being a big baseball fan. I remember he used to have tickets right behind home plate with the Angels, And you could see him uh, sitting there every game watching baseball. And he's done some other things with baseball. I I think he might have bought a minor league team or something at one point. But he's a big baseball fan. 
Also, uh, other investors were former NFL players Mike Sherrard and Christian Okoye, who was the Nigerian nightmare. He was a, I think he was a running back, either running back or fullback for the Kansas City team. And he was just a big dude. I think he's a, I, I don't know a lot about football, but I believe he is a coach now. And I think he was even rumored to be interviewing for a head coach position last year. That's all football you're going to get out of me. So that inaugural season, the league was composed of these teams, the Chico Outlaws, the Fullerton Flyers, the Long Beach Armada, and the San Diego Surf Dogs, spelled D-A-W-G-S. They formed the California Division. And then you had the Mesa Miners, the Surprise Fightin' Falcons, and the Yuma Scorpions. Now, they were then joined by the Japan Samurai Bears to form the Arizona Division. Now, if you're paying attention and you know anything about geography, you might be saying, why is a team from Japan in the Arizona Division? Well, the Bears were a traveling team. So really, they probably should have been named the Ronin because they had no home. They roamed the Golden Baseball League, having no home stadium, and played all their games as the road team. The team was made up almost entirely of players from Japan, but they did include some U.S.-born players of Japanese descent to fill out the roster, and they were managed by, this is a great name that we've talked about by before, they were managed by NPB import legend Warren Cromarty, who, remember, had a ton of home runs in Japan. He was also part of that Expos outfield with him and Tim Raines and Andre Dawson that was just uh, a great young core that the Expos squandered away as well. I would also like to note that the Samurais also had one of the coolest logos I've ever seen for a baseball team, which if, uh, if you have not seen it, maybe look it up because I would buy a hat with that logo on it. It is very cool. These Ronin were not the original team that were supposed to fill out the Arizona division. Originally, the Tijuana Toros were supposed to be one of the original eight teams. And, you know, it should be noted that, you know, it's, it's not part of Arizona or, or part of the U.S. for that matter. But the Toros were unable to play because government troops seized their stadium along with police and turned it over to the Mexican League a few months before the start of the GBL season because <laughs> Tijuana wanted uh, wanted a club they wanted to get a club back to be in the mexican league so they sent troops in there to block this from happening it happens i guess uh, this is the same tijuana toros club that is still in the mexican league today they're also currently managed by mark's all-time favorite mariner omar Vizquel. the toros by the way currently have on their roster Check out some of these names. Oliver Perez, who I think is 65 years old at this point. Horatio Ramirez and Fernando Rodney, who might be 64 years old. That is a veteran, veteran laden bullpen right there for the Toros. So probably the biggest moment in GBL history actually came before a pitch was ever thrown that inaugural season. On May 9th, 2005, Major League Baseball's all-time stolen base leader, the one, the only, Ricky Henderson, signed a contract to play the 2005 season with the San Diego Surf Dogs. 
this was a very special contract. Ricky basically got to pick and choose where he wanted to show up to play and, you know, when he did it. So he would only show up to a game if he was going to play, and he didn't play a whole heck of a lot, but he was there about half the time. One of these times was a game that I went to. So I was living in Phoenix, Arizona at this point, and the Surf Dogs were coming into town to play the Mesa Miners. That was pretty close to where I lived. I lived in Chandler at that point, which is just next door to Mesa. And they were promoing this. This was the league's biggest draw is come out and see Ricky Henderson, who had, you know, still kicking around, still wanting to play in the big leagues, but playing anywhere that they'd let him. And so there was a free giveaway. It was a Ricky Henderson bobblehead in a surf dog's uniform, even though they're the road team. There was a special meet and greet that you could have dinner with him, a whole bunch of stuff just to get people out to the stadium using a visiting player. So I went for it, of course. I mean, I was going to go anyway. Well, he almost didn't make it to this Mesa series because later, just recently, like a year ago, I found out that he and a writer who was documenting his time in the GBL were kicked off a plane to Phoenix because Ricky didn't want to get off his phone. And they got booted from the plane. But he did get there. I got the bobblehead. I sat in front of his daughters. Uh, I eavesdropped on them big time. Because if you put Ricky Henderson's family around me, I'm going to try to listen to them. Uh, I also then spent went out uh, for an inning or two in the outfield and left field where he was. There was nobody there. There was just a berm out there. And uh, I went and I just watched him, took pictures, waved to him. He turned around because I was the only one out there. And, you know, basically just did my did my thing. That was the very last game I ever saw Ricky Henderson play in person. Uh, he did lead the Surf Dogs to the initial championship, though, that year. In season two, Ricky was no longer there, but Jose Canseco signed with the Surf Dogs in 2006 as part of his attempt to get back into baseball's good graces, as well as to promote his book, Juiced. Canseco played one game for the Surf Dogs, and then was traded to the Long Beach Armada. Uh, He said the move was to be closer to his daughter. He only appeared in 21 games for the Armada. I'm assuming his contract was very similar, where he just kind of got to pick and choose where he, when he wanted to play. He hit four home runs that season, but only batted a paltry 176. Being a seriously underfunded startup league, teams would come and go every year of its existence. The league expanded to Utah, Nevada, and Canada, which is great for a league with no budget. Spread those teams out as far as possible so that travel is going to rack up those bills. But teams nevertheless that joined, uh, and then they would uh, quickly leave. Uh, Some of those teams were the Reno Silver Sox, the St. George Roadrunners, and the Zion Pioneers. That is with two Z's, which is something that teams in Utah like to do. They add those two Z's because the Utah Jazz, you know, have two Z's and everybody in Utah loves them. So they were the Utah Pioneers. They played, however, at Bruce Hurst Field, by the way, which I think is St. George's only big league player. And I knew that because I, growing up in Utah, I knew all the players that were from Utah. Other teams to come and go, Canadian edition, are the Calgary Vipers, the Edmonton Cracker Cats, the Victoria Seals, and the Edmonton Capitals. Now, some of these teams should be familiar to our listeners because some of them have gone on to other leagues that we have talked about, and some of them are actually still in existence today. 
The Calgary Vipers are one of these teams that might sound familiar because we talked about them just a couple of weeks ago. Former NHL star Theron Fleury toyed with playing baseball for the Vipers. He actually threw out the first pitch at their home opener and then magically showed up in the lineup, which is really strange. Even stranger is he singled in his first at-bat. The Vipers, by the way, were that team that traded that pitcher named John Odom to the Laredo Broncos of the United Baseball League for 10 bats. But he was not, uh, John Odom was not able to go to the Vipers because he had a criminal record and could not get past the border. Tijuana, I mentioned them earlier. They finally did get a team, the Tijuana Portos. Unfortunately, though, they had to postpone their entire inaugural season because of an outbreak of swine flu in Mexico. So their entire schedule, this happened late, so their entire schedule became off days for their opponents. 2010, uh, it was announced that Maui was going to have a team. Again, great thought to fly teams out to Hawaii for a series. Not expensive at all. Also in the great decision column for this Maui team was the name they were to officially be known as. Now, Mark is not here to help me with this Hawaiian name because he's fluent in, in Hawaiian. So we have actually uh, hired a new uh, member of the team here. The Pronouncetron 1000 is going to help me with how to pronounce this team. So Pronouncetron, go ahead and tell us how we say this name. Maui na koe ikuika. Uh, Pronouncetron, one more time, please. Maui na koe ikuika. All right. I don't know why we got the Australian version of the Pronouncetron, but it is already paid for its... Uh, paid for its usefulness twice over. So I'm not going to try to pronounce that again. What it means, though, literally is strong warriors of Maui. In 2011, Cavell left the Golden Baseball League to trick San Jose residents into paying for a new stadium for their MLS team. The Golden Baseball League joined forces with the United and Northern Leagues to form the North American League. A couple of other notes from the brief history of the Golden Baseball League. In 2010, the Chico Outlaws signed female Japanese pitcher Iri Yoshida. Yoshida was 18 at the time when she debuted with the Outlaws, and she had a wicked knuckleball. She was known as the Knuckle Princess in Japan. She struggled in that first season. She finished with a 4-8 mark and a 12.27 ERA a whip of 2.143. Now, that is not good if you are new to whip. She did pick it up. The following two seasons, when she was in the North American Baseball League, she posted a 3.84 ERA in 2011 and at one point had won five games in a row. She also went on to play quite a bit in uh, several Japanese leagues. And uh, just she really had a great knuckleball. I watched some video of her. I watched some video of her when she was in Maui, and it just so happened that it was a real windy day. And wow, if you want to <laughs> face a knuckleballer, a windy day is not when you want to do it. All right, a lot of other former players who we have talked about on this show numerous times managed in the GBL. I could not really find managers who I had never heard of in this league. Some great names. You got Mike Marshall, Ozzy Virgil. Daryl Evans, Gary Templeton, Corey Snyder, Jeffrey Leonard, old penitentiary face. I cannot see him as being a great manager, but he was there. 
the kid Gary Carter, Hall of Famer, managed quite successfully there. Steve Yeager, Phil Nevin, who uh, I think he's currently the third base coach with the Yankees. Our favorite knuckleballer, Charlie Huff. Mark Parent, one of my favorite catchers from the Padres. Terry Kennedy, Paul Abbott, Brett Boone managed there. Uh, Alex Arias. And of course, I mentioned Warren Cromarty. Players of note that played in the GBL, of course, besides Ricky Henderson and Jose Canseco. Some other guys that spent a good amount of time in the big leagues. Desi Wilson, Marcus Jensen, Daniel Nava. Remember, he had a couple of decent years with the Red Sox. And somebody that's still in the big leagues played in the Golden Baseball League. Sergio Romo is still, he's in, he's in Oakland this year. He is still in the big leagues. And he was a member of the Golden Baseball League at one point. So... There you have it. There is a brief history of the Golden Baseball League, uh, a league that uh, I did attend one game. It just, I, I looked at the attendance marks here, and, you know, some teams would draw two to 3,000 a game, which for a minor league team is not bad, but for an independent team is, is pretty good. I think you can probably guess my feelings about Dave Cavell uh, just listening here to what I've been talking about. It was, it was an interesting thing that they did. So there you go. The Golden Baseball League. That is it for our main story. Now we are going to get into the segment. Now, if you remember last week, Mark came up with another win. He finally closed me out. He's now won the first two seasons of our inaugural Wax Packs Hero League. This week, obviously, he's not here. I had something a little bit different planned as kind of, a, kind of an exhibition game. Because what I would like to do, and I think we want to get some listener input here is is go through our rules and maybe tweak them a little bit i know we've toyed with things if you are uh, you know wearing a double flat batting helmet or if you are not wearing any batting gloves or if you've been on an episode of seinfeld you get extra points we're gonna put some things out there you know maybe we won't start the new season for another week or two we'll get some feedback if you as a listener have any ideas Remembering, of course, that we're generally opening up 80s and 90s packs here. you got to remember what was kind of popular at that point that players were doing. And we can add those and, and maybe cut a couple of things that we, that we don't want to use anymore. But let's, uh, let's kind of review all the rules and uh, figure out a good scoring system for that. But with that in mind, let us now jump into a solo version of... Wax Packs Alright, so the idea here today was I wanted to I when I order these packs of baseball cards that we open up every week. Uh, I often order quite a few of them, <laughs> and the people that send them to me, because I'm ordering a good deal of them, will often just throw in some other things for us. Uh, just, you know, hey, thanks for thanks for ordering. Here, if you like baseball cards, here are these. So what uh, generally happens is I get some either really big, like, rack packs that have, like, 30 cards in a pack, which is too much to open a Wax Packs Heroes, or they will throw in a bunch of loose singles, and that is what we're going to do today. I had 20 loose singles here that I just randomly divided into piles of 10, 
And I, we were just going to play regular Wax Packs Heroes with that. Since Mark is not able to be here this week, though, I'm going to go through one of these packs, and we'll just for fun see what kind of scoring they are, uh, what kind of score we get from them. Now, because these are loose singles, they are not all from a single year. Some of them are more contemporary players, some of them are older players, and you know a lot of them probably fall within the range that we usually do. But what we're gonna do is we are gonna go by the baseball reference war of the year of the card. So we're gonna be skipping around quite a bit. We've got a couple of extra rules, and these are the things I want everybody to think about and see if we can kind of tweak them a little bit, maybe make it even more fun. If you are sporting a mustache, you're going to get an extra tenth of a point of war if it's a really good one. If we're talking Tom Selleck, you're going to get two tenths of a point of war. If you're wearing glasses of any sort, flip down, sunglasses, reading glasses, uh, blue blockers, it does not matter. 3D glasses will give you an extra tenth of a point of war if you were wearing those on your card. If you've got a sweatband that has got your caricature, your jersey number, or for some reason, a corporate logo other than a sporting goods manufacturer, we're going to give you an extra tenth point of war. If you're wearing real stirrups that we can see sanitary socks underneath, you're going to get an extra tenth of point of war. But if you are wearing those two-in-one monstrosities, we are going to take away a tenth of a point of war. And if you are a Hall of Famer now, you're going to get a whole extra point of war. All right, so let's jump into this and let's see how this goes with just one person. Uh, we've got 10, again, loose singles here, and let's see how it goes. So leading off first here, this is clearly in Wrigley Field because there's Ivy in the background, but the pitcher is with the Montreal Expos, and it is none other than Mark Langston. Now, we've talked about Mark Langston quite a bit. He's come up he's come up here a lot. Uh, I believe he is an announcer currently for the California California Angels. See, you, that's where my mind is. The Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. He was, wow, he was super dominant when he first came up in Seattle. He was also very good uh, once he made it to the Angels. But in Seattle, his first four years in the big leagues, he led the league in strikeouts three of those years. So really, really good. Also led the league in strikeouts per nine in those years including 1987, where he came in fifth in the Cy Young balloting. Now, this card is a 1990 tops. So let's look at his 1990 stats. He was, in, oh, this was his first year in California. So he spent one year, oh, half a year in Montreal, and then he went to the Angels. He finished up 10 and 17 with a 4.40 uh, ERA, 195 strikeouts, and that is an ERA plus of only 87. And in 1990, that equates to a war of 1.5. Uh, he does definitely have some real stirrups on here, though. So that will be a 1.6 right out of the gate. Langston, I think Mark has brought this up several times when we've talked about him. Great move to first base. 91 career pickoffs at that time was the most in Major League history. He's since been surpassed by Kenny Rogers, Terry Mulholland, and Andy Pettit. Again, all left-handed pitchers. That makes sense. I said uh, he is doing games for the Angels on radio. And I remember we talked about this in 2019. He actually had a heart attack in Houston at the Astrodome and was saved in the broadcasting booth when uh, a quick-thinking employee saved his life there using a, a, a one of those machines to help restart your heart. 
Langston, of course, we have to mention this. He appeared as himself in an episode of Sabrina the Teenage Witch entitled To Tell a Mortal, where he plays catch with Harvey, who I am pretty sure was a cat. Next, we've got a Hall of Famer. And this is great because it's uh, it's a card that we have not ever pulled before. It's a 1995 Pinnacle, which we've never had a pack of that. But it is Jeff Bagwell. So doing this, we read a lot of information about guys that come up in Wax Packs Heroes. Jeff Bagwell, definitely one of those guys that I absolutely was uh, on the juice. But he, he somehow steered clear of all of the negative press and made it into the Hall of Fame. Nickname, Bags, Baggy, Bagpipes, just a great name to make mention of. Now, remember, he did not come, he spent his whole big league career in Houston, but he was originally drafted by the Boston Red Sox in 1989, and then he traded to the Astros for Larry Anderson. That's a great deal there for the Red Sox. Larry Anderson, great broadcaster, really funny guy, lots of practical jokes, but Jeff Bagwell spent all 15 years of the big leagues with the Houston Astros. This card, as I said, was in 1995. Bagwell came in 15th in MVP voting this year. Kind of a down year for him, though. Lifetime 297 hitter, hit 290 this year, a 143 OPS+. Plus. And I am telling you, this was one of his down years, a 143 OPS+. Plus. He was the MVP the year before that, and in his rookie year of 1991, he was the rookie of the year. All of this equates to a war of 4.9. Now, actually on this card, it's weird. He always had a beard, especially at the end of his career. He had a really big beard. Uh, clean shaven. Uh, also was known, loved to wear those high tops and so forth. So can't see any uh, socks or sanitaries there. So no extra points there. He gets 4.9 plus one ten, uh, a whole point of war for being in the Hall of Fame. So that is uh, plus 5.9. Next, we get a guy, uh, I was talking to somebody about him right away. Of course, most people think of him as uh, using his head as a resting spot for Nolan Ryan's fist after charging the mound, but uh, it is none other than her ba third baseman for the Chicago White Sox, Robin Ventura. We've talked at length about Robin Ventura, how he actually got back at Nolan Ryan in the bottom of that pile, and Bo Jackson thankfully cleared people off. Robin Ventura was a great third baseman though six-time gold glove winner in his 16 years in the big leagues came in seventh in rookie of the year balloting in 1990 was a fantastic college player went to Oklahoma State I'm not sure if that record still stands but I believe at one point for sure he had a he had the longest hitting streak in college baseball history he was taken in the first round by the Chicago White Sox he played for 16 years, 10 of which were with the White Sox. Then he went on to the Mets, the Dodgers, and the Yankees. This card is a 1992 Fleer Ultra. So in 92, Ventura was an all-star, also won the gold glove. Slashed 282, 375, 431 for a 127 OPS+. Plus, and that equals a war of 6.0. Wow, that is a, a great uh, a great war there. Uh, he does have real stirrups on as well. So that will be a plus 6.1, and uh, that's a really good score so far. 
Next, we get a guy. Uh, too bad Mark is not here for this. I know he loves this guy. Houston Astros pitcher. Also uh, headed up a, a branch of Dunder Mifflin Paper in Scranton, Pennsylvania for some time. Uh, also is an admitted cheater. It is Mike Scott here with the Astros. All right, so Mike Scott won the Cy Young Award in 1986. Also got a lot of MVP votes that year. Had a great year. 18 and 10, 2.22 ERA. Led the league in strikeouts and ERA+. plus. Just a great year. This is one of my favorite cards, though, because this is 1987. It's those wood border uh, tops cards. Had another great year. Came in seventh in the Cy Young. Also an all-star. Went 16-3 and with a 3.23 ERA. Started 36 games, most in the National League that year, and ended up with an ERA plus of 121. That equates to a war of 5.9, and he's got real stirrups. So that is just a straight 6.0 and continues to, to climb with the score. 19.6 is, uh, is a lot of points so far. Okay, next is a card. Now, we have never pulled this guy before. And it's because he's kind of a, you know, it, it's a, it's a modern-day card. But we have never had Alex Rodriguez pulled on Wax Packs Heroes before. But now we can say that we did. Here it is. This is a special uh, 2005 Fleer postseason Alex Rodriguez card. But uh, let's take a look at this. A-Rod in 2005 was in his second year with the Yankees, and he won the MVP, the second of his three MVPs. OPS Plus of 173 that year, and led the league in home runs, runs scored, slugging, OPS, OPS Plus, just a, a monster season. Also had 21 stolen bases. I am afraid to see just how high this is going to be. 2005, that is a war of 9.4. Now, the great thing about that, though, is there is nothing on this card that would get you any extra points. But 9.4, that'll bring our total up to 29. I don't think I want to go into uh, anything uh, from Alex Rodriguez's personal life. I mean, you got you got J-Lo, you got Tory Wilson, you got a whole bunch of other things. You got him trying to buy teams, the Mets. I think he's in that ownership group that bought the Timberwolves now, finally. We're just going to skip uh, skip any of that stuff and go right on to our next player. Now, this guy we've talked about before. Again, I'm not sure if we've pulled his card before, but we've talked about him because he was a real jerk. But my God, he was a great player, and he was perfect to have batting behind Barry Bonds in San Francisco as protection because there were very few players that had a great as career as Jeff Kent. So here Kent is with the Mets. This is a 1996 Fleer card. Uh, actually, it says Flair, not even Fleer. It says it. It actually says Flair. We don't care about that. 1996 was his final year in a Mets uniform, and actually, he came up and broke into the big leagues with the Blue Jays. I did not know that. But in uh, 1996, he split time between the Mets and Cleveland. He ended up with a 101 OPS plus. He had 12 home runs. Uh, kind of a, just an average year. He was still a young guy at that point. Uh, 1996, that equates to a war of 2.4. 
Now, he has got a mustache, of course, because he always had one. He also has some flip-down sunglasses here. So that will bring that up to a 1.6. Uh, Jeff Kent, known curmudgeon, not a friendly guy. And, uh, of course, lied about breaking his wrist uh, when he actually broke it washing his... I think he was washing his motorcycle in the back of... Uh, in the back of a pickup truck, I believe. So remember Kent and Bonds, well, well, they worked well together in the lineup, just they did not get along. I mean, nobody got along with either of them. But uh, in 2002, they actually got in a fight in the Giants' dugout. It, of course, was caught on TV. And uh, th they disliked each other so much that the uh, San Francisco Chronicle beat writer, Ray Rado, who's still around, uh, this was his quote of the two. He said, quote, the one who lives longer will definitely attend the other's funeral just to make sure he's dead, end quote. Kent, of course, not in the Hall of Fame. Uh, he was also, here's our pop culture hook that we like to do. He was in a 2009 TV series called Superstars, which had athletes from different sports competing at events that were not their own. And he was teamed with actress Allie Landry, and they finished fifth in the competition. Also in 2012, apparently Kent was in a season of Survivor in the Philippines. He was the eighth contestant voted off, finishing 10th. All right, so next we've got another Hall of Famer, somebody that we have had on this, uh, talked about on this show quite a bit. It's one of our favorites, Tom Glavin. So this is a young Glavin. This is a 1989 score. Tom Glavin came into the league in 1989. He really broke out of his shell, led the league his second year, the year before, with 17 losses, but turned it around, went 14-8 and eight in 29 games this year, had a, a good season, uh, ERA plus of 98, so for a young kid right there on the, uh, the average, he had a .9 war for the year. He's got real stirrups here, so that's an even one, plus he's a Hall of Famer. So that'll get him up to uh, two even and bring our score to 32.6. We have covered Tom Glavin in depth before, so I think we'll leave the other stuff and we'll go on to the next guy. It is Catcher. This is a 1986 All-Star card from Topps. And these are classic cards if you remember what these look like. It is Catcher for the Detroit Tigers, Lance Parrish. Okay, so this is a 1986 All-Star card, but the card is from 1987. So let's take a look at what the big wheel did that year. It was his first year in Philadelphia, actually, and he just did catcher things. He did catcher things. He appeared in 130 games, 17 home runs, 67 RBIs, uh, struck out 104 times, OPS plus of 85. He did exactly what catchers are supposed to do at that point. Uh, this brings us to his war for the year, which was a .4. He's got real stirrups and he's got a mustache here. So that is going to be a .6 for him. That brings our total up to 33.2. Next is a gentleman that is not in the Hall of Fame, at least not in the Baseball Hall of Fame. What, this is a good card because anytime you get a card of Bo Jackson, you're going to be happy. This is a 1989 Topps Bo Jackson. So 1989 was Bo Jackson's lone all-star year. Of course, remember, that was the all-star game that took place in Anaheim. That's the all-star game where he led off the game with a monstrous shot to straightaway center field for the American League. Uh, good year for Bo. 
OPS plus of 124, led the league in strikeouts with 172. So Rob Deere was like, hey, I gotta, somebody's taking my title. But Bo had 32 home runs, 105 RBIs. His uh, OPS was 805, and as I said, a 124 OPS plus. That equates to a war of 2.7. There is nothing on this card, unfortunately, that's gonna get us any more points other than the fact that it's just, it's Bo Jackson. And uh, he is awesome. Okay, next, this is, see, this is the great thing about getting these loose singles, is we have got a card from the 1981 Tops set. We're, we're not opening 1981 packs. I can find them, but they are expensive. And uh, we're, we're not making money here. So this is great, though, because it is one of my most hated pitchers of all time. It is also a pitcher that we talked about just recently and have many times before because he used to scuff the ball with a uh, thumbtack. And uh, when he was caught one time, he walked off the field and wiped his forehead with said thumbtack, forgetting it was there, uh, making him juice uh, as he walked off the field. <laughs> so this is actually kind of cool, though. It's a 1981 Rick Honeycutt card with the Mariners. 1981 so this card is with the Mariners. Uh, this was the first year he went to the Rangers. He was still a starter at this game. Went 11 and six with a 3.31 ERA. Completed eight games. Not a bad season, 104, OP, uh, 104 ERA plus. All of that leads to a war of 1.1. He's got real stirrups on because at this point uh, in 1981, everyone wore real stirrups. So that will get us a 1.2. I don't think we need to go into any of the uh, other stuff about Rick Hennicutt. We have covered we've covered that at nauseum. Next, we've got another Hall of Famer, and it's another Braves starting rotation Hall of Famer. Here he is, though, with uh, his first club. It is a Greg Maddox from 1989. So he had shaved the uh, shaved the little porn stash by this point. This was his fourth year in the big leagues. Went 19 and 12, 35 starts with a 2.95 ERA, completed seven games, one of which was a shutout, ended up with a 129 ERA plus, came in third in the Cy Young award voting. Of course, he won four straight Cy Youngs, 1992 through 1995. All of this equates to a 5.0 war. Uh, nothing on this card is going to get us anything extra other than the fact that he is a Hall of Famer. So that is a plus 6.0. That'll bring us to 43.1 with one card remaining. And this is another card that we have never pulled before because it's a guy that is still playing. I think this is the only guy we've ever pulled that's still playing. Uh, but it is none other than Mr. Albert Pujols. And this is a 2005 Tops card. All right, so 2005 was Pujols' fifth year in the big leagues, led the league in runs, was named MVP, was walked 27 times. He's been intentionally walked four times he's led the league in intentional walks. He slashed 334-30-609. Wow, for an OPS of 1.039, an LPS plus of 168. He had 41 home runs, 117 RBI, he also had 38 doubles and two triples. He was still kind of spry at that point. Don't forget that as, as late as 2009 and 2010, he stole double digits. 
He had three years where he had more than 10 stolen bases. In 2009, he had 16. In 2010, he had 14. He has 115 career stolen bases. As of this recording, I don't want to, you know, maybe he had one today or, or Monday or whatever. He last stole a, he stole a base this year, actually. When he was still with the Angels, he was credited with a stolen base this year. So he's got 115 stolen bases. So that's uh, that's incredible. Let's see. 2005 war-wise, we are looking at an 8.4. Uh, he's actually clean-shaven, which is something that is odd in this picture. So And no stirrups are showing. So that is just going to be a plus 8.4. That will bring our grand total to 51.1. Wow. For 10 cards, that is pretty good. Now, normally when they give you loose cards like this, they're not going to be just nobodies. So that was fun. I got a lot of these, though, and I thought that was kind of fun. So this might be something we'll do again for maybe just some exhibition games while we try to get these rules squared away for the next season. But I thought those are some fun names to, um, to look through. A couple of things about Albert Pujols. He went to Maple Woods Community College. Now, I do not know where that is, and it doesn't seem to be telling me exactly where Maple Woods Community College is. It's in Missouri. There you go. First game uh, in his only college season. The very first game he played, and he hit a grand slam and turned an unassisted triple play. He was playing shortstop as well. Our Pujols can't give him Hall of Fame uh, points because he's not in the Hall of Fame yet, but quite obviously a, a first ballot Hall of Famer. And I'm excited that uh, that we got him on, on an actual episode of, of Wax Pack Heroes. All right. So I don't know how that would stack up. I'm going to keep these others, this other uh, 10 here for uh, for a later time. But uh, that was sort of some uh, some good cards, a lot of which we hadn't actually drawn before. So uh, let's start to wrap up the show. Again, uh, I apologize. It's just me this week, but Mark is recovering from some things, and uh, he will no doubt be back and well-rested and ready to go next week. But uh, we do appreciate you joining us as usual. If you want to get a hold of us, there are many ways that you can do it. Uh, you can find us on social media at uh, 2 Strike Noise. That is at TWO Strike Noise on both Twitter and Instagram. You can find us on YouTube. You can also find us on Twitch every now and then. I want to get back to doing some more things on Twitch. We just need to work out some technical difficulties. You can also send us uh, an email that is at twostrikenoise at gmail.com. That, again, is twostrikenoise at gmail.com. We've got uh, all these will be listed in the show notes, so you can uh, you can go and get them all there. So that'll do it for this episode. We will see you next week on another episode of Two Strike Movies.